welcome to this episode of the Good Take Podcast. Today we are we have the good fortune of being joined by Howard Beck. Uh, he works at Bleacher Report, uh, formerly from the LA Daily News and from the New York Times. It's quite a resume there. Howard, thank you so much for joining us. How is your quarantine in New York, other than the sweltering heat that you just mentioned? <laughs> no, my, my pleasure, guys. Thanks. Um, yeah, uh, hot, humid, sweltering, gross, typical New York summer. Other than that, um, quarantine's not as bad as it was in, in you know, March, April, May, when it was, you know, the only time um, we got outside at all was just to take a walk, get some fresh air, and it was like ridiculously cold and rainy and everything else, and it was really unpleasant to be outside for all of the reasons. But at least now, like, there's restaurants have sidewalk seating, and the the, the streets are kind of back alive again. It kind of at least feels like New York again. And importantly, the infection rate has been below one percent for uh, many, many weeks now. So it's it feels. You know, we're all still masked up here and people I think are being careful, but New York I think has done a pretty good job so that we have almost some semblance of uh, of normalcy, other than of course the fact that I'm spending my days watching strange NBA games from Orlando, which I am not attending. Um, and it's August and there's NBA <laughs> and that will just never feel exactly right, so. So speaking of that, how has it been for you to just to watch things in the bubble? Have you, I don't know, have you had any FOMO? Like, is it, I don't know, is it, is it weird to not watch, you know, games with fans? Like, have your eyes gotten used to just the whole concept? Yeah, I, FOMO, yes. Not always and not intensely. But, it, like, it's, it, it's like little bits here and there. It feels strange to, first of all, it's the longest I've gone in 23 years without getting on a plane, period. <laughs> Last flight was coming back from uh, Atlanta, I think it was Atlanta, um, right before the shutdown. And, oh no, Atlanta and then Boston. That was the Sloan Conference weekend. So Sloan Conference in Boston was the last thing I flew to. And then I haven't been in an NBA arena since, I don't know, whatever, say first week of March probably, like a Knicks or Nets game. And so, it, you know, there was no summer league. I, I would have, you know, obviously would have covered the playoffs and finals by now. So when, you, when I talk about FOMO now, it's about, well, it's not just that I'm not there in this weird environment that they've created to, to restart the season and hopefully finish the season. It's that this is the longest I've gone without being in an NBA environment at all for 23 years. Um, so it's strange not to be there. I don't miss it in the sense that I really did not want to be locked down for 90 days um, in the bubble. I didn't want to be you know, separated from my family that long or have it disrupt a lot of other things. Um, and I wasn't sure, given all the restrictions the NBA was going to understandably put in place to protect everyone, that there would be enough access to make it worthwhile. Now, as it happens, my friends who are in the bubble tell me, actually, the, the access has been really good. It exceeded expectations, which I'm glad for. Um, I don't know that that would have necessarily changed the calculus for me personally going down. But it's certainly, it's, you know, aside from not being at playoff games com coming up, playoff games and, and games in general that I normally would try to attend while working on a story or just to make the rounds schmooze whatever it's it's um it's also just the fact that it's a lot harder to cover the NBA from a distance um but there are many more of us outside the bubble than there are in right there's like 10 print reporters inside the bubble another I think maybe 10 from the networks um ESPN and, and Turner and so there are literally uh, probably hundreds um, and certainly at least 100, 150, 170, something like that, of just the, the regular beat writers, people who cover teams in every market, 
national writers like me in a variety of places, all of us who are covering this from the outside. So we've all had to, to adapt to, um, to this, this reality. And, you know, um, it's, it's been strange and challenging, but, you know, I, I think everybody's figuring out a way to, uh, to still intelligently, thoughtfully cover the league, even if we don't have the kind of face-to-face -face, um, access and, and conversations that, that we're used to having. Yeah, absolutely. And you talked about, you know, hearing from reporters who were down there in Orlando in the bubble. What are sort of the most interesting details, maybe the most surprising details that you're hearing, like the biggest differences between being in the bubble versus not? Like what stands out to you from stuff you're hearing from your fellow reporters? Well, I, you know, the main thing is that the reporters who are in the bubble, they're, they're going to practice, right? Now, every day, teams hold practices. They send out a, uh, an email with links to everybody who wants to cover that practice, you know, cover in quote marks, right? Cover that practice. So if, if it's the Toronto Raptors are having an, a practice day and you want to talk to Kyle Lowry and they're going to put him on Zoom, if you're there, you're, you're, in, the, you're in the gym where the Zoom call is actually happening and, and, and you know, practically face-to-face. -face. And if you're not there, you're, you're on the Zoom call. But when that Zoom call ends, much like when a, a, what we call a scrum ends in person, right? We, a bunch of us, you know, all, all crowding in around a guy during normal times that's over that we call it the scrum scrum ends and then you're like ah, i got one more question i didn't want to ask in front of the group and so you go back hey hey kyle you mind if i throw one more thing at you i just you know i've got the story i'm working on what do you think about xyz and you can do that if you're there and you can't do that if you're on the zoom call that just right. ended so that's like just fundamentally strategically or just it, it, it just affects the way you do your job um the vast majority of what we do, the best things we do as journalists covering this league are not happening in press conferences and they're not happening in scrums and they're not happening when cameras are on or that anybody's seeing. It's, it's all these side conversations down a hallway or coming off the, the practice court or um, you know, in the locker room after the scrum is over. It's, it's all these other places. And sometimes it's on, on the phone and other things too. So that part doesn't necessarily change, but um, you know, there's, there's a, a whole routine we have, you know, pregame at NBA games where reporters, scouts, GMs, assistant GMs, coaches, whoever, they're all just, just schmoozing on the sidelines, you know, before a game, you know, two hours beforehand. And um, that's where you pick up, you know, a lot of things, gossip, <laughs> um, rumors, but also just getting a sense of, you know, sometimes you're just trying to feel out some things. Ah, I got this idea. I want to see, like, is this legit or not? Is this something that's worth pursuing or not? Or what are you seeing? Or it's an advanced scout and you're saying, hey, where have you been recently? Who, which teams did you see? You know, what stood out to you? Um, or, hey, I'm filling out my all-defensive team ballot. You know, uh, you know, I've got these 15 guys. Who do you think? Like, it's, it's, it's just, it's a lot of that. And so, you know, 99% of what we do, I think, is, is in person. Um, and relationships are everything and just the ability to just have these casual conversations, th that's everything. So the people who are in the bubble are still getting a certain amount of that. And those of us outside the bubble, there's an extra bar to clear there where if you know these guys, you know, they're people you can still call and text, but the job is just so much more productive and efficient um, when you can see everybody in person on a regular basis. Okay, so then how, 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 how do you think then the industry might change a little bit? You know, I know there are certain things that are kind of temporarily, temporary placeholders, but do you think this industry 
you know, that Alex and I are both trying to get our foot into. I think it's going to change fundamentally. How, how do you sort of view the next, even like the next five to 10 years? What do you say? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And certainly even from the moment in early March where the league decided, you know, before they shut down, but they realized something, you know, this is big enough concern that we need to start putting a distance in. So we, they shut the locker rooms. They started doing a social distancing in the pre and the press conferences. That's where Rudy Gobert, of course, had his infamous moment touching all the microphones. That was in a, in a right after they instituted all of these social distancing guidelines so that we could still be where we would normally be um, and, and still have it, you know, um, still attend the games, still do everything, but not be in the locker rooms and not be close enough to potentially um, have people get infected. Um, even at that moment, people were asking, well, what's this going to mean for the future? Is this, is this temporary? Is it permanent? Does it have implications for the future? There are, you know, you know around the world, it's considered unusual, the, 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 the whole routine that we have here in the U.S. where basketball, baseball, football, where, where reporters are in locker rooms and clubhouses, whereas in, you know, international, you know, soccer and in Europe and elsewhere, they don't do that. Um, so there's some fear that you know, this could be a turning point um, where, or an inflection point where things just change forever. Obviously it's my hope and the hope of, I can say safely, 99.99999% of my colleagues that that doesn't change, but there's, no, there's just no telling. Um, you know, we'd all like to believe whether it's this job or whether it's our day-to-day -day lives, school, uh, air travel, everything. We'd all like to believe that there's gonna come a moment in the next eight to 12 months when treatments have been developed, a vaccine has been developed, people have been able to get that vaccine and where we come close to wiping out this particular coronavirus and we will all just return to the way our lives were um, on March 10th or January 1st, whatever marker you want. But I don't think epidemiologists, public health officials, um, NBA officials, School superintendents, I don't think anybody can declare that or know that. Um, I do think that if we get to a point where this particular virus has been close to wiped out and where life in general is normal, I have to believe and trust and hope that the NBA, as it has assured us many times, will go back to the routines that we had before, which will mean we still go in locker rooms, pregame and postgame. We still have a lot of in-person access. And, and, and we do our jobs the way we've always done it. That access is, is actually really important for all, all kinds of reasons that we could get into. But um, the, the NBA all along has assured us that these things are temporary. These are temporary measures that are necessary, which we would not disagree with at this moment in time under these very specific circumstances that are affecting obviously the whole world. And that when this all lifts, um, we should go back to, to you know, the way we used to do things. So that's still my hope. Um, I, I, I would think that, uh, you know, if your question was, you know, where will we be in terms of how the NBA uh, is covered, you know, in, let's say next April, May, um, or, or, you know, opening night in 2021, I'm going to say with some level of, of confidence slash optimism that uh, it'll look a lot like what it used to. Nice. And then, um, Sort of looking at the changing world of sports journalism in the bigger picture, you know, you've started the uh, LA Daily News in 1997. You've covered the NBA ever since. We're college students, not in, we're not in the professional game. We're just sort of trying to break into yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very good, very good marker. Um, 
So how have you noticed the world of sports journalism change in the 23 years um, you've been covering the NBA? I mean, we could do an entire podcast just on that, to be right. honest. So I'll try to keep it short. Um, <clears throat> when I started in 97, you know, the internet was still in its infancy, right? So I'm, every story I'm writing is for the newspaper. And, you know, um, the, the, whatever you would consider, to, you know, the scoop of the day, right? Coach is getting fired. Um, if you knew that the coach was getting fired the next day, you'd write a story saying coach is getting fired. You'd send that in. It would go through copy editing processes. It would be laid out on the page. It would go to the printing press and people would pick up the paper the next morning and go, oh, wow, apparently the coach is getting fired today. And if you had that and your competition didn't, they'd go, oh, crap, uh, I've got to catch up on this story. And of course, by the time they do, the, maybe the coach has already you know, been fired and they're having a press conference to announce it. That's the way that the news cycle and certainly breaking news broke, uh, worked back then. Now, if the coach is fired in the middle of the day or, you know, you got it and it was, say, say you know, a radio or TV outlet had it first. Okay, now it's, now it's just live, it's going. But the cycle was, was, was very much still a 24-hour cycle. That was a newspaper type of cycle, you know, first thing in the morning one day to first thing in the morning the next day. And if you got scooped, you're catching up and you don't have a chance to even catch up and write about what you know, what you've confirmed or not confirmed or, or whatever until the next day. You're 24 hours behind. Um, the internet, uh, you know, newspapers all rushed onto the internet in the late nineties and now, okay, now, then they still had to figure out, well, when do we make our writers file for the web versus the newspaper? Because at a certain point in time, they were still trying to preserve the newspaper as the conduit for not just the news, but all the advertising and all the revenue that came with it. This is how newspapers screwed themselves. They rushed onto the internet, threw everything on there for free. Um, totally, uh, devalued their, their longtime actual physical product whole other set of podcasts. Um, but it changed our routines. It changed our deadlines. And once newspapers realized we should file to the web first, we are, a, we are a, a, a breaking news, live news organization. We don't wait for the newspaper anymore. But that was a huge shift for newspapers to, to decide on. Now that changes. Okay. Then the next big one, Twitter comes along in whatever, 2007, eight, whatever. People start getting on it in 2009 in force. It takes a few years for it to really take hold, for people to realize, figure out how to use it best and whatever. That has been the single biggest game changer in, I think, media period. I think in all of our lives period, even if you're not in media, even if you're, even if you're just a consumer of, of news, Twitter changed everything. Because now, we're, you know, before it was the newspaper cycle, 24 hours. Then it was, okay, we could be more instantaneous, but it's still it's the time it takes me to type up a whole story, have it edited, and then go on the web. And then it was, oh, no, 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 I've got information and I can tweet it right now, immediately. I don't have to wait for an editor. I don't have to, <laughs> I don't even have to confirm it. You know, that whole thing you've seen in old newspaper movies or movies about like, you know, like, you know, all the president's men was, oh, get your second source, get your, th there is no second source anymore. Twitter obliterated that um, completely. Now it's whoever can get the, that, one little morsel of information first. You tweet it before anybody else can. If you so much as hesitate, somebody else will beat you to it. Um, and so, and, and that has been leveraged by, by people. The people who have that information have absolutely leveraged that to their own benefit um, in terms of where that information goes and, and how it's used. So um, Twitter has changed things dramatically, but that's just on the news breaking side of things. <clears throat> and I always say like this job, 
journalism in general, whether it's sports, news, whatever, is not just about breaking news. It's not just about scoops or micro scoops. It's about informing the public, educating the public, analyzing you know, what, what you see, synthesizing it, explaining it, telling a great story about it. And again, that applies to sports, that applies to city government, it applies to, to whatever area you might cover. And so Twitter changed a lot of that. It did not change the fundamentals of, of reporting and writing. I do think that there's been um, almost too much emphasis in the Twitter age of the scoop because there's, there's this moment of glory that, that you get, right? Like there's this rush if you've got the, the, the first to put that information up and a bazillion retweets and everybody's you know, crediting you and all that. And so I saw it for a while, especially younger people trying to come into it, were like, well, that's what I want to do. And, 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 and if they ever asked, not all of them do, but when, when I'm in conversation, I, I would try to say, listen, it's fine, but that's not, that's not the end goal. The end goal is not Twitter followers. It's not scoops on Twitter. It's not necessarily being first on everything. Reporting and writing intelligently and, and, and doing the, 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 the job of journalism is so much broader than that. Um, that people sometimes I think get too caught up in that particular game. Um, and at the expense of, I think, writing, like I'm not sure people value the writing as much as, as they once did. Um, I didn't get into the business because I wanted to break every story. I got into the business because I came up reading certain writers whose work I admired and I thought they just really told a great story or were writing about my favorite teams at the time um, in a way that was entertaining and, and, um, and informative. And, and I wanted to do that. I wasn't, you know, so, but people get into it for different reasons and, and people, you know, you, there's now all these micro niches for the kind of, of reporting you want to do. So you could, you could be just a newsbreaker that that job did not exist once upon a time. Um, everybody kind of did everything. And, um, but yeah, uh, that's a long answer, but Twitter has changed everything. No, for sure. Yeah. And it actually leads perfectly because I, I'm curious your thoughts on the way the league is sort of covered now. I mean, I, both of us, both Alex and I, you know, we're Warriors fans from the Bay Area, but we we get annoyed, as I'm sure other people do, about you know, you know, the Kendrick Perkins of the world. Like, there's a lot of you know propaganda-ish things out there, and you know, one of the things that sort of bugged us too is you know, as an example, is you know, the last several years, you know, we heard that because Steph and KD played on the same team, like, oh, now you can't win, you know, an MVP if, if two superstars, and now this year, LeBron's like one of the favorites. So I'm. I'm curious, like, I guess, what, 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 what's your thoughts be on the MVP? I believe you, you had Giannis number one. And then also, like, your thoughts on the way the league is just covered in general. So, you know, with, with the stat aggrandizing, like, what are your – sort of a two-part question, but what, what are your thoughts on yeah. sort of both those things, especially, like, the way narratives are constructed? Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I've said before probably, on, you know, a few times on Twitter over the years, like, I hate the fact that narrative has become this, like, pejorative word, like, oh, it's just a narrative, as if narrative is something yeah. like, no, no narrative is just, a, it's just a, a story. It's just like, it, it is, it is a, is a theme. It's a story. It's, it's a way of, of contextualizing. Um, I hate that narrative has become this, like, you know, throwaway line, just like hater. You can dismiss everything by just, <laughs> like, ah, you're just a hater. Therefore, all of your, your uh, doesn't matter how well-reasoned your argument was, that you're invalid because you're a hater, or it ah, doesn't matter how well-constructed your argument was, that's just narrative. Um, there, I mean, listen, um, it's the way we process things as people, right? Like, the, a narrative helps uh, the stats make sense or helps the, the arc of, of somebody's story make sense. It's the way we, we contextualize and interpret. Um, so the MVP race, listen, every single year, it's probably the same collision of, of 
basic arguments or kinds of arguments, a statistically based one, an observationally based one, one that's based on the team's success, one that's based on the individual's success, one that's based on precedent, one that, like it's all these things. And MVP is in the eye of the beholder. And there are at this time, a hundred voters. There used to be 126 or something. Now there's a hundred. Um, and every single one of us comes to it with a, a little bit different way of processing the season and all those performances. That's what makes it interesting. That's why it's worth having a debate. If it were just as simple as creating some, you know, one perfect all-in-one stat that proved beyond a shadow of a doubt who had the best season, well, we could just run the fucking numbers and then there is no debate. Okay, great. Well, what fun is that? Um, and it's fine that we have the all-in-one stats, flawed as, as some of them may be. Um, and they're useful uh, for various purposes, but they're not, they're not all uh, defining. They're not the, the be-all, end-all. Um, Giannis is the MVP this season because of a few different things. Um, it always starts with the individual excellence, right? I always say individual ex excellence plus team success. It's got to be both. And the precedent, which I believe in, is there, 35 plus years with Russ as the major exception, where you had to finish top two, top three in your conference. You had to be like a 50 plus win team. You had to be a team that was a clear contender. Um, almost all the MVPs for the last 30 plus years have been that. So um, it's not just that the Bucks had the best record, though that helps his case a lot. It is also that he had the individual excellence part to the nth degree. His season was historically great. And it was historically great, even though he averaged whatever it was, 29 minutes a game or something. Like if you, if he played a normal allotment, he would have beaten LeBron in all the basic counting stats or the season averages by an even wider margin. And he beat him in several of those. And, and LeBron had a couple of them too. But Giannis's minutes were way down because they were blowing teams out so much, which you guys can relate to because once upon a time, the Warriors were doing that. And it, it kind of deflated some it's of what's again, <laughs> but it, it, it deflated some of Steph's stats at that time, right? It happens. So Giannis was historically dominant. He also was the linchpin to the best defense by far in the NBA. And they had the best record. And he doesn't have an Anthony Davis. So you asked about, well, Steph and KD, did they cancel each other out? Yeah, they probably that, did. That, 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 that's what the media told me. So that, 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 that's why I'm just a little bit, you know, um, a little bit annoyed. Yeah. Listen, um, when we say most valuable, right now, so we're using a, a, a construction that grammatically suggests it has to be one person, right? And when, and when you look at a team that has two guys who are both MVP caliber, and in this case, had both been MVP, you know, very recently before they became teammates, it's really hard to parse it out. I, you know, you mentioned earlier, I started at the, the Daily News in 97. I covered the whole Shaq-Kobe era from that point till, till their end. And Shaq won an MVP, just one. Kobe's MVP came years later after Shaq was gone. And in the years that they were winning championships or any of those other seasons, it was kind of hard for one to stand out from the other. Now, Shaq had other baggage of missed games and other things that might have depressed his, his MVP um, candidacy in, in given years. But um, I think there were years where probably both of those guys were on the same ballot. I might have even done I might have had like Shaq second and Kobe fifth or something. I, it's, hard, it's impossible to remember what I did back then. But yeah, sometimes it's, it's hard to put it all on one player when you've got two guys who are both top five players on the same team. Um, but I have a higher bar for the first slot than the second slot and higher and, and, and third, fourth, fifth, right? It's a five slot thing, right? So it's, the, the record is really important to me. And, and all that precedent I talked about is really important for the very top slot. 
and then slightly less so for the second slot. And by the time I get to fifth, I have Chris Paul fifth this year, right? Chris Paul's team, probably not a contender, although who knows this year, everything's crazy. Probably not a contender, but those lower slots you're now I'm using to recognize other things that don't adhere as strictly to the things I laid out for what I believe needs to be there at the top of the ballot. That's, that's my system, right? Everybody's got their own. Um, Shaq and Kobe. Here's the other one, actually, that's interesting. The Sacramento Kings were one of the, the Lakers' biggest rivals, obviously, for a span there. They were phenomenal, loved watching those teams. And Chris Webber, to me, was absolutely the most important player on those teams. But they were perceived to be an ensemble cast. They were great, not just because of Chris Webber, but Vlade and Mike Bibby and Doug Christie, Peja Stoyakovic. Like, this was a really good team, and they were also just deeper than the Lakers. And they had the best record one year by a long shot, I think. And I can't remember if I actually put Chris Webber at the top or not, but I was really wrestling with it because I thought – Ideally, the MVP, not always, but ideally, you'd like it to be the best player on the best team. Again, if it was just that in a formula, well, then you would have no debate. You would just pick the team with the best record, pick the best player, write him in. Again, I don't think anything should be that dogmatic. But Chris Weber had a case, um, but he, he, it was hard, I think, for him to stand out from a team that was considered to be more of an ensemble uh, cast. I think, and I'll wrap up on this note on this one, Giannis's second, Giannis's co-star is Chris Middleton, who is absolutely an all-star, but he is not an Anthony Davis level all-star or a Paul George level all-star or a Dwayne Wade next to LeBron James level all-star or a like go go down the list of, of all the twosomes and threesomes we've seen of the last 20 years. Middleton's, I'm sorry, he's just he's not at that level. That means that Giannis did that much more, um, not just statistically, but but in their winning, and the winning matters without having another top five type player. And LeBron did have that. So um, I did factor that in as well. It wasn't the only factor. It was a factor. Mm -hmm. So now something we were also, we were, we were curious about is you're a, you know, you're a, a Bay Area native. Um, you've, you've talked to Steve Kerr about, you know, how special it was for you to get to spend more time in the Bay Area when the Warriors were having these playoff runs over the last few years, sort of what about, what about those times stand out to you? Um, yeah. So, I mean, uh, if you listen to that podcast, I mean, there was obviously a couple of different things there. Um, you know, one broader and one more specific, you know, the, the, the broad piece is that being from the Bay area, growing up in San Jose, going to school, at UC Davis, um, anything that gets me back to the Bay area is always welcome. I love living in New York. We've been here for 16 years. Um, I love Brooklyn and we've been here this long for a reason. Like we have not, <laughs> we have not tried to move back. Um, we love living here. Still love California too though. And um, love the Bay Area and have a lot of friends there and family in Northern California. So anytime I got to come back was always a bonus. And five straight Warriors finals for me, you know, people, you know, they're always wondering about oh, media bias, this, all that. Like we don't care who wins and who, who loses. Um, we do selfishly care about where we get to go or sometimes where we have to go. <laughs> Some places more welcome than others on the, on the map. Um, so it's always, it is, it's about, it's about us. Like, yeah. Okay. Free trips back to the Bay area. I'll take it every time. When I was living in California, free trips to New York, take it every time. Um, certain other places on the map that I love to go. It's a few that I don't. Um, but for, for selfish purposes, that was great. Um, and my, my parents retired 
um, in the early 2000s and moved up to a town called Lincoln, which is near Roseville, which I'm sure, as you guys know, is like, you know, 40 minutes outside of Sacramento. Um, so they're way up there. Uh, the Kings have not been good enough to get me any or, or not enough trips to that part of Northern California, unfortunately. I wish the Kings would be a little better so I'd have uh, more excuses to fly on the company dime out there. Anyway, yeah. But the Warriors have, have been very good to me. Um, so that was five straight years where the Warriors were getting me out there in June for extended periods and multiple trips because it's a, of the, you know, the, the 2 2 one, one, one format. And that meant between usually games one and, uh, one and two, because that would go Thursday, Sunday, um, I'd have those two off days. I would drive up to Lincoln to go see my folks. Um, and I did it every, you know, every single time. Every chance I got, that was a free trip to get to go see my parents. Um, my father passed away last July, uh, a year ago. And so that June um, in the finals, I did not know it at the time because there was, you know, a lot of things happened in between these, these, these two, two endpoints. But in June, between games, in this case, two and three, because it started in the East this time, we, I flew to Sacramento for, after game two, went and saw my parents, hung out, had a nice visit. Um, my dad had a fall a few weeks later. That fall landed him in the hospital. That led to a, a domino effect of, of other things. And before I ever got a chance to get back out there, he was gone. So literally the last chance I got to see my dad was because the Warriors were in the finals. Um, like it, it's, it's, um, it, it's, such a, it's such a strange way to think about it because the job can take you from family a lot, especially you know my wife and daughter who had to put up with all my travel when I was covering the Knicks still, and, and even now I don't travel as much as I used to, but um, it, it, uh, it quite literally enabled me to see my dad at a time that I wouldn't have otherwise. If the Warriors weren't in the finals that year, if, I, if it was Rockets, Raptors, I would have been bouncing between Houston and Toronto. Series would have ended. Um, my dad presumably would have had that same fall, the same set of circumstances, right? And, and I wouldn't have had that June visit. Like I, I you know, literally, got to see him as close as I did to the end because of that. Um, so yeah, uh, it was when I had Steve on the podcast last September and that was six weeks after, I think. And so, yeah, I, I just kind of mentioned and, you know, thanked him like, <laughs> thank you guys for being so dominant that you got me out here uh, all these Junes and got me these free visits um, with my parents. Um, it's uh the basketball gods work in uh, mysterious ways. Absolutely. So speaking of basketball gods, how might they exercise their powers uh, in the next a couple of months? Uh, we, we're understanding how things are all wacky and weird. I was also going to ask you why, why you think the Bucks aren't getting a ton of respect. I mean, it seems like, again, they're historically great. But it seems like people are sort of looking for an excuse to pick the Raptors or maybe the Celtics. Uh, how do you see the playoffs shaping out? And who, who's, your, who's your, your, title, your title pick? I mean, it, it's such a weird thing because, you know, there's no reason to believe – anything other than the usual NBA axiom of talent wins, the best talent wins, period. Like, you know, you're not going to find too many years where the champion was not the team that you either expected or thought plausibly was in contention, was in the conversation preseason or at least by midseason, you could see it coming, right? There are no very rarely surprises in the NBA um, when it comes to May and June. The occasional upset, the occasional we believe warriors, right? Um, the occasional eight-seeded Knicks making a run in 99 to the, to the finals. Uh, it happens, but upsets are rare. Talent wins. Talent rules. 
Um, we don't know what the bubble will do to that axiom. We don't know what the lack of home court and the lack of travel and the lack of fans and all these other things will do. To, to date, we have no reason to believe that the virus will, will cause some weird, uh, you know, jagged direction for the postseason, but that's possible still. Injuries, certainly possible. And we've already seen a ton in the, in the first week or so here, a uh, week and a half of seeding games. So the teams that were discussed before that were the clear favorites in March should still be the favorites now. However, <laughs> the Lakers and Clippers have both been kind of lackluster for the most part in the seeding games, which means that people are kind of starting to, to wonder a little. The confidence level has decreased. I think these are glorified exhibition games. I don't think they're definitive. Doesn't mean you can dismiss them entirely either, though. And the Bucks are a different case entirely. The Bucks, best record all season, reigning MVP, who will probably repeat as MVP, best defense in the NBA, um, really good supporting cast, big distance between them and the other teams in the standings in the East. And I think, if anything, I would say it's the opposite uh, of what you were suggesting about people doubting them. I think more than anything, people just kind of assumed they were coming out of the East. But once we start discussing the NBA there's, you know, as, as, as vigorously again with these games going on and people start to see, oh, you know what? Toronto looks really good right now. And oh my God, yeah, Boston. Yeah, when they're healthy and Kemba's knee is okay, they're really deep. I think it's, it's also natural to say, well, okay, but what are the, the, the possible counterfactuals? Where, you know, where else could this go? I've been one who all season has said, the Bucks are legitimately the favorite and they're great, but I'm not sold on the idea that they were a lock. I've been saying Toronto and Boston should be considered the whole time. And at times I've said Philly and Boston or Philly and uh, Miami should be in that conversation too. Um, Philly falling out of it without Ben Simmons, I would say Miami. Again, they've been a little weird in the bubble. Jimmy's missed a bunch of games. Dragic missed some games. Um, I think it's a race in the East. I think it's, it's a, a three to four team race in the East legitimately. And I will still say, say it's a two team LA race in the West. Um, but the Clippers have a lot of work to do and they need to get Montrez Harrell back. The Lakers have some work to do. Um, but I, I, I just think, you know, when it comes right down to it, trying to knock off LeBron and AD together, trying to knock off Kawhi and Paul George together, you know, good luck. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing we, we had to ask you about, um, one, of our, one of our favorite pieces that you've ever done, um, the oral history of the Kobe to Shaq lob in the, uh, in the conference finals against Portland in 2000. Uh, but we both really liked that piece. What was it like to kind of to go back and, and revisit that whole thing, especially in light of uh, Kobe's passing? Yeah, no, thanks. Appreciate it. Um, I, I loved doing that story. It was one I'd wanted to do for years. I, obviously, I covered that series and that game. You know, it's the 2000 Conference Finals, Lakers in Portland, Game 7, Lakers down 15 in the fourth quarter, and by all rights should have lost that game. And if they lose that game, there is no dynasty probably. Um, you know, maybe they only win one or two, but not three in a row. And besides that, if you lose that game, the consequences might have been a roster blow up. And, you know, if the Blazers win that, their roster does not get screwed up, which it did after that, after that game and after that series. Everything is different if it, if it changes. But also, it's rare that you can look at a, a dynasty, um, probably in any sport, but certainly in the NBA, whether it's that Laker dynasty, other Laker dynasties, Celtics dynasties, the Warriors dynasty, um, whichever one you want to point to and say, that was the moment. Like, that was it right there. Um, it is reminiscent of the photo that's sitting over your shoulder, Alex, of, of the catch. Um, 
because <laughs> which is like I've, I've said many times you guys might know like that is the seminal moment for me because I was 13 years old when that happened and that was like the moment for me as a young sports fan who was just starting like I wasn't hardcore into in, like I, I wasn't like reading the paper every day I wasn't watching every game that was the moment that sealed it all for me and the, the Niners go on to win that Super Bowl they become the dynasty of the 80s and from that moment on, I'm devouring the sounds of Mercury News sports section every morning. It, that, that is literally the moment that not only launched that Niners dynasty, but launched my, my sports passion that led to me deciding I want to write about sports for a living. My entire career goes back to that catch that is sitting over your shoulder on your bookshelf. Um, the lob from Kobe to Shaq. I, I even realized it at the time, like maybe it was the next morning after I got off deadline and got my head clear and whatever, and figured out what I was doing to get to the finals and all that. But it hit me at the time um, that, that for a generation of young fans, that was going to be like the catch was for me, like this incredible, it, 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 thrilling, amazing moment that you couldn't see coming, that wasn't scripted, that just happened spontaneously, Kobe to Shaq for this lob. And it seals that game and that, that, that series, and it launches the Laker dynasty. It is, it is, the, it is the, the, um, the formative moment of that dynasty. So um, maybe because of the resonance and the, the kind of the symmetry with that and the catch, maybe that's why I always had to come back to it. Um, but it was also, yeah, look, I, I, I wish I could have done it when I first wanted to a few years ago while Kobe was still alive. Um, he, you know, like it, it's it was incomplete without him fortunately he he had given an interview that was on a documentary that the uh spectrum sports net down in la had done so i was able to use some of those quotes in my piece but it was great getting to to just i had never gotten in all these years you know i don't think i'd ever talked about that game again after that day with Shaq or robert ory or Derek fisher uh rick fox all the trailblazers who i got to talk to for that game or for, for that um for the for the follow-up story or for the, the oral history you know, Scotty Pippen, Bonzi Wells, uh, Steve Smith, Damon Stoudemire, all these guys were great. Mike Dunleavy. Um, it was just fun to revisit because of how impactful that game was, how memorable it was for me as a reporter covering it. Um, you know, we just, it's, it's, I don't think I'd ever done that before where I'd gone and revisited a very specific moment that wasn't just meaningful for the teams, but for, my, for me as well. That was the first championship run I'd covered um, my third year on the beat. So yeah, it was like, that was a really fun trip down memory lane. Nice. Uh, Howard, we really appreciate you joining us. Uh, this last question, is there anything that yeah. you want to plug, anything that you have going on, any, any like vlog or I don't know, whatever, whatever you want. Projects <laughs> you want to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, Point nothing specific. I'm working on a couple stories that I hope to get out soon. Um, I'm always uh, too, too superstitious to talk about them before they appear. So uh, I'll withhold, but a couple yeah. things coming, at least, at least one next week, I hope. Um, podcast, uh, the full 48, of course, you can find uh, on uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify and all, all the other good places. Um, spoke to my former Times colleague, uh, Bill Roden, earlier this week to just talk about the impact or maybe lack thereof of all of the uh, NBA players demonstrations, whether it's kneeling, whether it's the shirts, the Black Lives Matter on the court, what, it, you know, what, what does it accomplish or not accomplish? What should, should be next? Um, Bill uh, has been writing about these issues for longer than I've been alive. 
Um, so he was, he was, uh, he was great to talk to about that. Uh, that was a really fun conversation. Um, and probably, I'll probably record another episode on Thursday of this week. Uh, have not figured out where that one will go yet, but, um, yeah, appreciate that. Um, and appreciate the conversation guys. Great questions. This has been fun. Always great to connect with, uh, fellow Bay area guys. Um, totally. well, I can't say fellow Niners fan cause I'm no longer a fan, but it's part of the, 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 uh, that's, that's what happens when you become a professional sports writer. It's a casualty of the job. Um, yeah. But that photo still means a lot to me. So you mean you, you won't cheer when they win the, the, the Super Bowl now, next year? You won't, you won't cheer? I might give them a golf clap. You know, okay. I might, uh, you know, there's a, it is Pavlovian. I will say this. The last time they were in the Super Bowl when they lost, um, I, I basically, like, at the end of the game, I went, ah, yeah, it's too bad. Whereas when I was, when I was like 16, that would have destroyed me for days, weeks. What I think I just would have been crushed. And now it's like, eh. And then I thought, you know what? That's not my Niners. My Niners are still undefeated in the Super Bowl. This is some other generation's Niners. It has no relevance to me. It's, so, it's, it's, it's our problem. Okay. That's your problem. The joys of uh, the joys of, of of completely cutting off your fandom and having no emotional ties to any team or player is that it it. Uh, yeah, you don't get the high highs and the joys of all that tr true, which is the point of fandom. But uh, you don't have to deal with any of the uh, the, the grave disappointments either. So um, it is weird, though. When I see the uniform, there is still something that like, oh, okay, what do they do? Oh, oh, they're good this year. Oh, okay. But it, it's I, I I've long since uh, kind of cut myself off. We, we, we the, back back in February on the night on our night, we had a we had a very we shared a very angry phone call. Uh, hope, hopefully, why do we run the ball? Day. Yeah, exactly. Why, of the, of the, why didn't they run the ball this time? And hopefully, someday we'll be able to step back, have that just sort of those sort of more objective conversations when our when our teams are in those moments. So, yeah, absolutely. I, I look forward to uh, you guys making that that jump. Um, yeah, and, uh, and, and seeing you seeing you out doing this uh, some someday. And uh, yeah, stay in touch. Absolutely, and we'll hope to see you down the road once uh, things are the, the world is normal once again. So. We will get there. So. I'm confident. Thank you so much, Howard. Really, really appreciate your time. Thanks, guys. Take care. Thank you. you too. Be sure to check out Good Take with Alex Hutton and Zevin Schuster on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are available. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at AlexHutton35. That's Alex Hutton, H-U-T-T-O-N 35. And at ZSHUS9, that's Z-S-H-U-S-T-9. And please follow us, spread our work, and we hope to uh, see you back here again soon. Thanks so much. Now back to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this episode of the Good Take Podcast. Uh, that was a really fun uh, conversation with Howard. I really enjoyed uh, getting to talk to someone from the industry. Uh, it was really, really a good conversation. Do you have any takeaways, any thoughts, Alex? Any, you know, anything stand out to you? Yeah, I mean, I just appreciated sort of how in-depth he was with his answers. You know, he's very methodical. He thinks about uh, his words carefully. He, you know, he, he wants to give like really, really clear answers without, you know, devolving into hot takes or sort of over the top of his head. He really wants to um, think things over, make sure he backs up his points. And it's always good to hear from someone who, who kind of takes that angle. So, so uh, yeah. you, you, you mean you don't like, you know, oh my God, LeBron's a choker, Skip Bayless, like, oh my God, you know, like all yeah, no. that, I mean, streaming. that is blasphemous, crazy, asinine, I mean, asatan. I know, I mean, I know you, 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 you've known me, you know me for 16 years and it's not like I ever would, would, would want to go that way, but uh, no, um, you know, it's, I, you, you know, as I prefer the sort of the methodical, 
rational thought over sure. the, over the craziness. And that's what we're trying. That's what we're trying to do with this podcast, really. Absolutely. So, so speak, speaking of that, it's a nice segue there for sure. Um, how would you methodically digest and dissect uh, the, the news that we've heard from college football in the last half an hour? Uh, we wanted to, you know, talk for all for all of our many listeners, for all you guys who wanted to just talk a little bit about. I mean, this, the, the Pac-12 and the Big Ten canceling their fall seasons is huge news. So first of all, what, what are your thoughts on that? But before we get in, into our final segment, we wanted to really discuss uh, the ramifications that this is going to have on uh, many things. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're recording this on Tuesday, and by the time the sound comes out, there'll be tons of new information, tons of things will change, because the way things move these days, everything happens so fast. Uh, but we did want to talk about it because – while, literally while we were recording this, the, the news broke the Big Ten and the Pac-12 were, were postponing their seasons. So, I mean, it just feels like a, a like sort of a landmark watershed moment for college sports in a lot of ways. That everything that has come out with the players saying, you know, we want to play, but we want to play under these conditions. We want these demands to be met. And then, and then for the NCAA to start to threaten to cancel the season as soon as all that stuff happens is just the most NCAA thing ever to me to want to cancel the season instead of meet the meet the demands of their players who currently don't get paid. I mean, it just feels so on brand for them and not in a good way. And mm-hmm. they're, I mean, they're not treating them like employees, which is what they are. Right, exactly. I mean, I've, I've maintained for, for years that NCAA athletes are, 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 should be considered employees and should get paid at least some amount for the work they do because there was so many billions of dollars going around in college sports for the athletes to never see a penny of it is just, I think, so unfair and so ridiculous to me that this moment, you know, I, I really would never want a global pandemic to be the thing that triggers this, but for it to happen is, I, I hope that in some way this leads us farther down the, the right path of these guys eventually getting paid for what they do. How would, how would you like, uh, how would you like, how would you do it, I guess? How would you, would you like, how, how would you go about playing the players? Would you just get like, oh, it's capitalist, whoever gets money off the name and likeness, fine. Like, how would you? I, th- I think that's, that's some of it. I think another portion of it would be re- redistributing the, the money the, the, that the schools take in and that the NCAA takes in and making sure that there's, so there's some kind of contract in which the players get a cut of that and it gets distributed evenly because, you know, I mean, the... The, the backup offensive lineman on, you know, the, on the worst D1 football team maybe shouldn't get the same amount as, as Trevor Lawrence, but, they're, they, but they still put in, that person's still putting in tons of work and making money for their school and not getting any of it. So that's not fair either. So they do need, I think there has to be some way to make sure that every athlete gets at least something and then sort of, and then the, by redistributing the money and then the name image likeness part can sort of determine how, how much each person gets, you know? Listen, minute. if somebody played a video game with my with the video game version version of Zevin Schuster. I I would want some some royalties on that for for sure. Um yeah, I mean it's it's so interesting. I mean, obviously colleges don't have the resources that the pros have. And so I mean for them to test test that many people, I mean I mean their football teams and basketball teams already have more people on it, plus all the other sports. I mean there's right. no I mean it's not even conceivable. I mean to 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 keep running all their sports. I mean we've seen what Stanford just caught eleven eleven with schools and they're like Probably the most. I mean, they they win the Capital One Cup or whatever it's called every year. I mean, they're they're as you know, there's their sports and their whole school. They're they're as tight and as well run as possible. So like when they have to cut back, it really, I mean, that really that really to me is supposed doom for a lot of people. Yeah, no, no question. And the other thing about 
NCAA sports is they, they can't be played in a bubble. There's just too many athletes and too many teams. And it's just too hard to, like it just, Right, exactly. And you mean so know. No, not everyone wants to go to Zoom University, obviously. No, of course not. And no, but for, I mean, it's, it, I think it's just so, I think it's incredibly reasonable to say like, hey, we're, we're just like the pros here in that we are risking our health in a lot of ways for the entertainment of the American public. Why are we not being treated like that? Why are we not being paid like the pro athletes are to do the same thing? Because they're amateurs, Alex. They're amateurs. I mean, there's been, there was a, there was, I mean, there was a book that came out that was written by someone who used to work with the NCAA who said they very specifically used the term student athlete to, to frame them as amateurs and sort of shift the public opinion of, oh, they're not employees. They're, they're student athletes and they can't get paid because of that. And it's just, I mean, you very slick and slimy. No question. Yep. No, I mean, the, 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 lang- the language of the NCAA uses always, you know, they're not employees, they're student athletes. I mean, you'll hear that exact phrase all the time. And, and, like, and they frame it as, this, oh, it's this ridiculous thing to try to convert a, a, a student athlete into an employee. But, like, so many parts of a college, the students get paid. You know, there's so many different on-campus jobs that students can get. And then, but then the, the athletes who bring in so much money for the school, for them not get paid, but the, you know, the kid who, who works a shift in the, at the campus dining hall, the fact that he gets paid, that just doesn't add up. Do, do, so. do you remember Shabazz Napier after the uh, Connecticut won the NCAA tournament? He was like, yeah, we, I didn't have enough food to eat. Do you remember yep. that? Yep. Yeah, that's, that's, that's just, that's insane. That's great. Yeah, I know. Especially when you see, you know, the amount that all these coaches are being paid. Um, and no, I mean, it's yeah, crazy. Exactly. Plus, I mean, the whole student, I mean, look, I'm sure the overwhelming, I mean, 99% of these guys, of these athletes aren't going to go pro and so i'm sure they go they're, they go to class and they're well behaved and all, all, all the type of stuff but for the ones that are making the most money like like let's say a trevor lawrence do you really think he's getting up at 8 a.m like oh let's i'm really going to go and try and make it to like you know transient economics like no like maybe 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 trevor lawrence is but most athletes who who are going to go pro and make money just aren't going to do that so the, the ones that the NCAAs are actually most concerned about you know not not getting paid trying to keep their classifications down as student athletes, the ones that are the most profitable, those are actually the ones, the 1% or the less than 1% from each school uh, that doesn't need, you know, that doesn't need to go to class because, you know, again, right or wrong, but they're, they're the ones that it doesn't really matter for. So to me, they're actually sort of harming, I think, the, the rest of them because they're, 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 they're putting these guys who make a, lot, a bunch of money in the same class as, you know, like you said, the backup offensive line, which I don't even think is fair. Mm-hmm. I know, I mean... I mean, I, I totally agree, and there, there's, there just needs to be a better way in place. It, it's just gotten to a point where they're so close to being professional athletes, where, I mean, athletics is such a huge part of their life. I mean, I've, I mean you hear things from so many college athletes about how busy their schedule is and how much it revolves around their athletic schedule so much more than their academic schedule, oh, even, yeah. though you put, even though they always put student ahead of athlete in, in well, I mean there's there's the, there's the morning workout then there's the yeah. afternoon then there's practice I mean there's constant right. and, film, and film sessions and weightlifting and how high up on your bucket list would uh this would uh, changing up the NCAA rules be that, that's a, that's a fantastic segue uh, I, if if I were in charge there you uh, go. Call, call back to a previous episode uh, no I mean if, if I if I were in charge I mean, that's something I would institute so fast I would you know talk to people who've who've done re- research on this and we would sort of and we'd 100% collaborate on some kind of plan to to get 
the the revenue into the pockets of the of the people who who make it. I mean, should should the coaches get paid something? Yes. Should should the should even the best coaches be making the like the like six to ten million dollars a year? No. I mean, the the coaches can make a little less, and then the and the players can get get yeah, some I mean, of that. I, honestly, I, I don't care how much the coaches make as long as the players who deserve who are allowed to make money, to be honest, or as long as they get some portion of it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean. Yeah, no, I, I get that. I mean, as long, yeah, I mean, because they're, who, who, who do you go to a game to see? You see, you go to see the players. You don't, you don't go to see. I don't know, I, I, I don't know man. I, I, really, I really like that outside linebackers coach, man. I don't know. <laughs> I, I really enjoy the, I really enjoy the, uh, you know, the, 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 you know, offensive line coach. <laughs> and I mean, no, that, that's, that's my favorite part. Of, no, but like, yeah. You're going. You're going to see the players. That's what you're paying your ticket for. That's. I mean, that's who's. Even if even if their name isn't on the back of the jersey, that's whose jersey you're buying. And and then the, the fact that they're not seeing the money that they're creating, like it's it's just it just stinks for them. And I, I it's something I want to see. I want to see change. And if I mean, you know, you've seen the legislation recently getting passed um, and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, in different things to try to. I think the goal of that is, you know, to try to take it to the Supreme Court, things like that, and get a ru- get a ruling. In Obviously, favor. Gavin Newsom signed the thing on LeBron show. Yep. Last year. Yeah, exactly. Well, year, last year, sometime recently. Last year seems like ten years ago. But anyway, yeah. we wanted to. You mentioned twenty nineteen, so yeah, yeah. yeah twenty nineteen seems like nineteen nineteen. I know. Uh, sorry. So speaking of of, of a bug list, you mentioned it was a good segue. Yeah. Maybe done on purpose, possibly. Uh, we had a segment that we wanted to call uh, Bucket Up. Not to be confused with the F word that has the mamet up, uh, Bucket Up. So in this segment, we are going, we're each going to uh, say one uh, sports item that we've already checked off of, of our bucket list, and then one more that we are going to, uh, that we hope we are going to one day uh, check off as well. So we'll start off with the uh, already done, and then Alex will say his, I'll say mine, and then we'll go into our our wish or our, our hope uh, for the future. So first off, Alex, what is your uh, item that you have checked off off your bucket list that you, at least the one that you're most proud of uh, so far? Okay. Yeah, for sure. So this was in, this was in 2017 for a long time. I wanted to run on the field, rush the field after a college football game. It was something I wanted to do. You know, you see it on TV all the time after big wins or upsets or whatever. And it looks like such a good time. And I, something I wanted to do for a while. And then in 2017, uh, it was my freshman year of college. I was visiting, coming back home over a long weekend. And uh, Cal uh, had a home game um, at, at night. And I got to sit in the student, in the student section, uh, thanks to our, our good friend, Varun Kamat, who goes to Cal, and who we will definitely have on the show at some point, I think. So um, we, we went to the game together, sat in the student section. Cal was playing uh, Washington State uh, that night. Washington State was like number eight in the country, I think, um, for that game. And Cal just like crushed Washington State. I mean, it was it was unbelievable. Like I think they forced like seven or eight turnovers. And there was a, there was one play. I'm I'm sure a lot of you have seen it, where um, Cal's quarterback ran for a touchdown, and did a flip into the end zone because um, he, he tried to he tried to dive and like the Washington State defender kind of undercut him, and he and he flipped into the end zone and almost stuck the landing. Uh, very close, but it was still like one of the I think the play of the weekend, you know, that kind of stuff. And Cal and the final score was like 37 to three. Or something like that. I mean, Cal just destroyed them. And with like a minute left or something, everyone in the student se- section just started chanting, Rush the field, rush the field. And like we all, and like as the clock was going down, we all started like squeezing our way up towards the uh, like the stairs. It's like a, a stair area right near the student section. 
where you can run on. And initially the security guards were like trying to stop us, but eventually they just said, forget it and go. And like, so we all just like started, so, some people tried to like jump off the, uh, like the, the ledge and get down and like a few people like kind of wiped out trying to do that. Um, but me and Varun, we like um, just kept going down the stairs. Like there were like a ton of people kind of just jockeying for position and we all eventually got down there and ran around in the field and celebrated the upset wins. That was really exciting. Did uh, did, did the field goal posts uh, survive or no? The, the, they they had they had security guards like standing around the end zone, standing around the post and everything. Not okay. They, okay. They, they, were, they were prepared for it. So nice. Okay. Yeah. I was gonna say mine's pretty simple, but I for me honestly, I mean it's been checked off a few times now. But for me, it was honestly just uh, just the Warriors uh, winning 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 title. I was thinking, gosh, I mean I've been to Fenway Yankee Stadium. Those are up there, but. I also don't like to admit uh, things to rival teams. That, 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 that's a tough one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've been to, like, you know, a, 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 um, Olympic trials. But, but there's, there's nothing like your – actually, it was pole vaulting, actually, which is pretty damn cool. Pole vaulting and, like, the, the jump over the bar. Um, but there's nothing like your team winning a title. And, again, they, the, the fact that it was just so unexpected to me was just made it that much better. I mean, no, like, when, that, that's the thing that, that people don't understand about the Warriors. And I, and I get everyone hates us now. But to me, the Warriors should be like a, you know, a total success story, kind of like a, you know, like, like a Steve Jobs or like a LeBron James who came from nothing and then just made it, became this just global dominant entity. So I'll never forget the, the night that the Warriors won in 2015. My dad and I, I think when my friend, Matthew, actually Matthew, actually, I think we, we tried to drive to Oakland to try and get to go to some, there was, a, there was a bunch of partying like outside of the arena. We wanted to see if we, if we could go, you know, I don't know, play music with them and, and it, things were all taped off but just that that whole night and then of course oh it doesn't count LeBron oh like he didn't have his best player so the Warriors title doesn't mean anything it's gonna make it all out LeBron so but at least for a few nights it, it was at least for one it was really you know I I, I mean I thought it was a good chance that it was gonna be the only night I would, I would ever get to experience this because you, you never know when your team is gonna win a title I mean just ask you know the Cubs fans or ask you know ask the you know Atlanta fans I mean they they, they have seen have they seen any title like ever? I don't I don't think so. Um, I mean, I mean, the, the, the Braves the Braves won one in the, in the Braves won, that's true. The, the Braves won one. That's right. But other than that, right? And we we've right. been you, we've been less even really blessed being a Giants fan. Um, yeah, I know that that for, there's nothing like the the first title and for, for for the for the Warriors to win that and to gosh I mean to to really to put an end to all the like oh the jump shooting teams can't win and to really cement themselves again I mean they went remember they won. 67 games that year, one of the 10 teams ever to do that. So, I mean, they were already a, a historically great team before their, their 73 win year. For, so for them to, to do it the way they did and to, you know, make so many fans, you know, in the Bay Area, you know, to make their dreams come true was really a special thing. And, and again, I think anytime one of your teams like win, win, wins a title, I just, I wanted to think about something else that there was just nothing that I could put uh, in front of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean that's that's obviously that's always endless for me. I just kind of went more of the personal experience. Oh, yeah, for sure. did, did you go to any? Did you go to any of the parades? So I, I went. I went to the first one, and then the, the last two. I, I I my summer job was starting out of town. Okay, got it. Um, um, all right. So how do we want to do? Do you want to do oh, yeah, the, so the next one? We'll do. Uh, actually, no. I, I, it's funny. Actually, at the first parade, our other friend Jacob Hershey will hopefully will also have one. Yeah. So, so I was me, him, and my dad, and somehow we ended up getting separated. Um, so Jacob and my dad got separated from me, or vice. I got separated from Jacob and my dad, and apparently Jacob almost fainted, and he got all faint, and so my dad had to like ask someone for like Gatorade, and so to like help Jacob from like passing out. But anyway, yeah. Okay. Fun story. But anyway, 
uh, what's a bucket list item that you hope to uh, check off one day? It can be as anything as yep. as big as you want. Yeah, no, this this one probably a little bit off the board. It's something you probably don't know. I'm, I'm interested in doing. I want to go to a professional soccer match in Europe, whether it's you know Barcelona or Madrid or London or yeah, yeah, a classic. That'd be a great option. I want I want to be there for all that pageantry and just sort of the insanity of European soccer at least one time. You know, I just I mean you I, I watch it I watch it on TV and all the cheering and the screaming and all the traditions and the the singing and the chants and all that kind of stuff. I want to be there and experience. Like I love those. I love live sports. I mean, that's one of my it's one of my favorite things in the world. You know, and I mean, I I have so many choices I could have gone with, but I wanted to. But like I feel like there's just such a Soccer runs so deep in those countries that experiencing that experiencing that in person just feels like it's hard to beat. I mean, in, in anything. So going to, you know, a Man U game or a Liverpool game or, like you said, El Clasico or something like that would be – I just think it would be so much fun. Gosh, that, I honestly get, get goosebumps just thinking about it. I mean, we've yeah. seen it with the MLS. They're like, they drop up and down like, and they're like chanting and like throwing the streamers onto the field. Right. I mean, the soccer here is nothing like it is, obviously. Right. I mean, I mean, in Europe, it's times 100. So, yeah, yeah I know for sure. All I, right. So it's so incredible. I mean, yeah. I, I, I would say if I was going to go to a, to a European soccer match, El Clasico would probably be it. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably, probably be it for me. I mean, there's, I mean, there's a few like, you know, I've heard great, great things about Liverpool, about, you know, Manchester City, Man United, um, all, yeah. those, all those type of teams. But I think. Mm-hmm. Especially because I don't know if you this documentary is about this, but there's also like like the political rivalry about that. Like the, there's like political implications too mm-hmm. that I'm not that familiar with between Barcelona and Madrid. Like there's just so much uh, history besides the on-field rivalry and Ronaldo and Messi and all that type of stuff. Yeah, no, hundred so, percent. All right, yeah. so for me, yeah, go ahead. It seems like you're being much more creative than me. I would love to go to an Olympics, like just mm-hmm. so badly. You know, there's I, I have a few events that I would love to go to. Um, so I guess, okay, it's tough because like Phelps and Usain Bolt are retired, but I, I would have loved to have seen, uh, you know, Usain Bolt like run a, you know, uh, run in a hundred meters. Um, but if we're going in, in the future, I would love to see a, um, a gymnastics, um, a gymnastics uh, uh, free for all. I forget what the name, what it's called. Then if I'm going to switch to the Winter Olympics, I would love to see the, uh, the gold medal hockey game. The, uh, the USA Canada final final from 2010 is one of the, my favorite sports games that I've ever watched. Just, it was just an unbelievable game. So I would say probably those two. Um, swimming, diving, maybe. Um, although I guess now basketball is going to be more competitive, so I would probably go, go for that. But I don't know. To me, just there's something about this country pride is that, that's just very unique. Um, you know, everyone loves playing for their club, but for, to really, I don't know, to take, to take pride in, in your country. I mean, we've seen, also, it's, we've seen all sorts of guys who maybe have bad reputations, like Melo in the NBA they're selfless they put you know the egos to the side because you know they're they understand the gravity and the weight of what playing for their country means that they're willing to just do whatever it takes and be on their best behavior to do what's best not for their team or par- partially for the team but also for the country and that whole concept and really seeing how it brings the best out of people in, in any sport is really something that i would love to go to and then i would also have to include the uh, the opening ceremonies too which are just mm-hmm. you know I, I maybe some people think oh it's kind of corny and cliche i think they're really cool uh, and it, it's cool to see players kind of you know, how often you get to see that many athletes kind of in a relaxed setting, not just kind of in like a media scrum. You just kind of get to see them being themselves and genuinely hanging out. Um, so I would say all, all of it, you know, that's, I kind of listed a lot, but the, the Olympics in general, but the few things that I've listed. 
Yeah, no. Like, yeah, watching, like, especially with, with basketball and hockey, you know, watching guys um, who are, like, on opposite teams in the NBA, like, on rival teams, and sort of, sort of playing together for the sake of their country. It's also really interesting. Isn't, aren't the Olympics scheduled to come to L.A. in, like, 2028? Yeah. So, hey, I'm covering them. So. Yeah, only, you only have eight more years until, until you can probably make that, make that happen if you're, if you're around at that time. So. If I'm around, uh-oh, uh-oh. I don't know, is, is coronavirus going to get me? I don't know. We'll see. Hopefully, hopefully not. But uh, I mean, maybe, maybe you know, maybe who knows? Maybe in eight years, it'll be like some you know international TV sports correspondent who gets to go to to cover the Olympics. And hey, man, and honestly, I would I would off. love to. I would have loved to have gone to Japan next year. And oh, who knows? And you know, yeah, we'll eat, see. eat a bunch of sushi, and then you know. Hey, the world is unpredictable right now. Who knows what's going to happen? I know. I know. Hold on, hope. Is, is is there anything else, or should we uh, wrap it on up? Let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. All right. Yeah. Uh, thanks for, for listening, everyone. Uh, thanks to Howard Beck again uh, for joining us. Uh, just a quick reminder again, uh, you can follow uh, Alex on Twitter at AlexHutton35. You can follow me at ZShuts9. That's Z-S-H-U-S-T-9. And again, Alex, that's uh, Alex, H-U-T-T-O-N-35. And then please uh, find uh, Lane Loops on SoundCloud. Uh, just at uh, Lane Loops on, on SoundCloud. Uh, his music is fire, as I'm sure everyone has seen. So please check him out. Uh, and again, follow, follow Howard Beck on Twitter, uh, at Howard Beck, and then check out his podcast, uh, The Full 48. Uh, thanks so much for listening. And then uh, anything else, Alex, or we're all good? I think we're all good. Thanks, go- uh-huh. thanks for listening, like you said. And everybody take care. <laughs>